Welcome to Women Travel, a podcast where I interview women about the places they've been and the things they've done too. This week I'm interviewing Georgette Siqueiros. Yes! Yeah, I have practiced your last name so many times. <laughs> that was um, great. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And so this is kind of focusing on advocacy and activism, and that's kind of my local expert on that. <laughs> I don't know if expert's the right word. That's very generous. <laughs> Thank you. Great. So starting with your, your backstory, I just kind of want to hear about where you came from and because uh, that seems to have started you on your on your path. Definitely. Uh, or influenced mm-hmm. it a lot. <clears throat> so I guess more specifically, were you born in the United States or where were you born? So I was born in Tucson, Arizona, uh, but my parents were not. My parents were born in Sonora, Mexico, and all of my family was actually born. Um, my family um, is from Mexico, so my Mexican roots have been a very prominent part of my identity and my upbringing um, since I was a child. I believe I, I learned Spanish before I learned English as a kid, and I didn't really learn English very much until I was actually in kindergarten okay. or preschool, I guess. I did grow up in Boise, Idaho. We moved. My parents moved us here when I was about two years old, so all of my memories are from Boise. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely born and raised, or not born, but it feels like I was born and raised here a lot. Do you think that learning Spanish first like affects how you how you think about English or um not to, not so much. I learned that about a year ago, pretty recently. I didn't know that I um only spoke Spanish as a toddler because I did grow up in Boise, Idaho. Basically everyone I interacted with outside of my family except for very specific groups spoke English. So I I feel more comfortable speaking English uh, than Spanish now. Particularly Particularly because I get more practice in it when mm-hmm. I am able to spend more time uh, with my family and when I do get more practice after about two weeks of speaking mainly Spanish then my brain turns Switches over <laughs> yeah and then um then it's mostly in Spanish that I think, and then switching back to English is hard. Does it feel like you have like a backlog somewhere where you can just like after a little bit push into that? A little bit. It's it's a weird. It's a weird feeling for sure. I don't know. It's <laughs> okay. a little bit of like culture shock and just tapping into a part of my brain that I don't usually exercise so much, but it's there and it's like ready for me to use. Um, when I do have the opportunity to use it as much. Immigrant issues is something that you are very active about. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask, does that relate to why your parents moved to the U.S. or is it not related? I mean, it it is related. My my parents were very much more economic immigrants, so they came here for the opportunity. You know, I was having dinner with my my parents last night and they were telling me about the difficulties of living in Mexico when they were young and it's truly astonishing and it made me realize um, the privilege that I've had but but for example my my dad on his side of the family he was able to come to the United States um, fairly easily he was able I think because he had connections he was able to get um, his green card and study and work in the United States from a young age. But I know that his family applied for um, immigration to the U.S. together, his father, him, and um, his siblings. And it took about 20 years for that application to come through. And by that time, unfortunately, my grandfather had passed away. It had been about 10 years. Like, it had been a long time since he had passed away. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sent the application to the back again. No. Uh, Yes. (laughs) 
So so it's pretty crazy. My my aunt, my dad's sister, she or she used to live in what was my grandmother's house or sorry, his their grandmother's okay, house. Okay, so your aunt lived in someone's grandmother's house. My aunt lived in her and my dad's grandmother's house. So a family, Got it. A family okay, house. Okay. Uh, very special, very special to the family. Um, so it was like her mom's house. No, it was her grandmother's house. Okay. Her, her grandmother's house. Got it. I follow <laughs> now. <laughs> um, yes, my, so my aunt lives in her and my dad's grandmother's house. So my great grandmother's house. And about 10 years ago, maybe when her children, my cousins were infants, one was maybe a toddler and one was a baby still she was having dinner waiting for her husband to come home it was pretty late at night so so he was working late and she was just feeding her kids at their family dinner table and there were gunshots fired into the house from I think it was I think it might have been just a bar fight happening across the street or something but yeah. that is not an uncommon occurrence and and so she had to hide in the closet with her two young children until her husband did come home. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's terrifying. And, and was there any way for her to warn her husband? Like, hey, you're coming into this situation or? Um, I'm not sure. And I think it was, I think it was like a brief, you know, like a couple of gunshots and then it was over mm. pretty soon. But, mm-hmm. you know, she stayed in the closet because it's terrifying. What are yeah. you going to do? Yeah. Um, so I think by the time he came home, it was safe. Um and I'm not sure if they had cell phones at that time because it was quite a while ago. Um, so I can't remember the details, but I definitely remember, you know, the gunshots. And, and then the next time yeah. I went to visit their house, they showed me, you know, the gunshots in the wall and the window and everything. So so it's crazy. When I, when I was there in December, we went out to eat to Mexico. We usually do day trips now and we have to kind of get back before dark because mm-hmm. it gets kind of dangerous. We were at an area by my own grandmother's house where I used to spend a lot of time as a child. And I heard a bang and it sounded also to me like a gunshot. And it was like, it sounded like it was a street over. Yeah. And no one else in my family noticed it. No one else in the car noticed it. But later I was like, did you guys hear that? That sounded like a gunshot. And my dad was like, yeah, it was probably a gunshot because it's just a common a common yeah. thing. So so it's dangerous. And, and I think something important for me to know is that it's not, that's not how Mexico has always been. My parents have these amazing, beautiful stories of when they were growing up. My dad had a family ranch that they would visit a lot. Um, he like spent all his summers there, and he had. And some... he wears like the big cowboy hat. Yeah, the... yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, yep. That's very much a big part of um, Mexican culture. He's definitely like a Mexican cowboy because mm-hmm. <laughs> he has his boots and everything. Does like the term vaquero still apply to that, um, or is that a different kind, kind of? of. Context? I think. Okay. I, think, I guess I. I don't really hear my my family <laughs> using that term very much. I think it's kind of dated. I think it's more yeah. like saying cowboy, you know, yeah. like you, you have, maybe it's more data than cowboy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but my, so my dad has um, some beautiful memories. Um, his whole life, he was spending time at this ranch with his family, but I have no living memory of being able to go when I was little. I, mm-hmm. you know, there's this photo of me and at the ranch and this little shed and this deer is like coming oh, cool. <laughs> inside. Yeah. And like sniffing me or something. So it's like, a really cute like snow white baby kind of you know precious moment <laughs> yes. actually does bring me to a question that i was going to ask is that there's i guess a stigma especially about um more rural parts of mexico where it's like more dangerous and you don't want to stay out past night past 
you know, the sundown. And it's hard to get past a stigma like that. There are even neighborhoods in LA that are like, you mm-hmm. don't stay out in, yeah. when it's dark. But once those places start improving, it's hard to like mm-hmm. see get past those points. Mm-hmm. Do you think that especially the town you're talking about, can get past that? I think so. And I've definitely seen that a little bit throughout my life. There's been periods of time when we were not able to go at all, even for day trips over there, because oh. it was too too dangerous. And then there were times where it really got better. There were years um, where we were able to go and stay longer, and it was totally fine. And now um, it's getting a little worse again so now it's um go during the day but come back as early as you can what changes the tide i think i struggle with the the terms because i hear a lot of terms a lot but but yeah basically just like criminal activity and violence but there isn't like a like something that's like the the point like you can just like point to this and be like well because aries is in retrograde uh that's (laughs) why there's more crime um i don't know i'm sure some people could um i i'm personally not that knowledgeable in that specific area Okay. That's fair. Mm -hmm. That brings me to like kind of growing up in Boise, hearing Mm -hmm. all these stories and having that background. Um, Did you like I had a really big moment in middle school where like I was like, I'm going to be an activist and like (laughs) burn everything down. Um, (laughs) And like my attitude has changed since then. Did you have a similar feeling growing up? A little bit. So in high school, I wanted to be a journalist, and as co-editor, they wanted uh, the the professor wanted me to write a cover story, and what I ended up writing about was how violence in Mexico affected students at Timberline High School, and so I talked about my personal story, kind of you know what I, what I've been mentioning today, and I interviewed other students. There were a couple of students who actually grew up in Mexico and who were much more um, knowledgeable about you know the exact gangs and the more in-depth knowledge about why the violence was happening and everything Mm -hmm. so that was interesting and what I really wanted to do back then was just bring awareness and that's you know how I wanted to be an activist was just bring awareness and start conversations you know within our high school and in Boise because even though Boise is like so far away it seems like it's so far away it's a 20-hour drive from the northern border of Mexico it affects a lot of people even at Timberline High school it did yeah but then I moved away from that a little bit because so I moved away a little bit from that uh, because my senior year of high school that's when everyone was saying that uh, the newspaper was dying and that was a terrible career to go into oh that yes yeah <laughs> yeah what a beautiful lie that we all fell for a okay. beautiful lie yes <laughs> and now we know the media is more important than ever yay <laughs> and those skills are incredibly valuable they are so valuable <laughs> yes so I kind of moved away from that aspect Aspect of the career, but then as I went on with my education and my career choices, I found advocacy as a different way to raise awareness, and that's kind of how it morphed from more journalism to advocacy work as a career. How would you define the difference between advocacy and activism? Yeah, so that's definitely a blurred line a little (laughs) bit, I would say. And something interesting that I found trying to be kind of an activist and an advocate at the same time is sometimes activists and advocates butt heads. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I found, and I'm very much still learning, so definitely don't write this down as a definition or anything, but 
Uh, what I found is advocates t uh, tend to work within the system of power that we have. So working with Congress or working with the state legislator versus activists who kind of try to, as you said, burn everything down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's a mood. Uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. Okay. And I totally understand um, and agree with and I'm on board with tearing everything down because <laughs> the way we do things right now definitely sits um, on oppression and it's very much based on like people benefiting off of other people's oppression basically I guess uh, well like there's a there's a big especially with capitalism is there's a misfortune balance or imbalance where like if someone can always make a profit from someone else's misery. And like, that's mm -hmm. not a good way to build up capitalism. And there are possible ways to turn it economically so your fortune can become everyone's fortune. Yes, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. And that's definitely an important one. And, and you can look into like, how can we have billionaires when people can't afford mm. basic medicine or food? So I actually, this is a weird segue, but speaking of billionaires, I didn't know that the vaccines, Gavi, Mm -hmm. That was a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. However, they are billionaires, uh -huh. and it is unsettling that like they're the only well-known billionaires who are known for philanthropy. A hundred percent. Most like I don't know any other billionaires who are known for philanthropy. Yeah, and I I mean it's amazing because Gavi has done incredible things across the world um, to help especially children get access to vaccines um, to improve the global poverty or to eliminate or reduce global po poverty. Mm -hmm. But definitely, especially when you talk to conser more conservative people and especially more conservative lawmakers, uh, something that comes up a lot is as you mentioned, that results. So we talk about uh, global poverty and trying to end that. When we do try to ask for those things uh, from... <laughs> from puppies. From, from puppies, puppies yeah. Age. yeah. <laughs> when we do try to ask uh, for those things from members of Congress, a lot of times they say that should be the philanthropist's job. That should be the billionaire's right. job. But again, as you said, not all billionaires take on that kind of work. And for example, Jeff Bezos very like famously donated about $600,000 recently. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I mean, if you like compare that to how much he, he actually makes, that's not very generous at yeah. all. And it's not very impactful, even though, you know, like that six to $700,000 is a lot more than we would have had otherwise. That's not gonna... $600,000 really isn't that much when right. you have gobs and gobs. Yep. yep. So <laughs> definitely, I personally believe that you cannot rely on the generosity of billionaires, especially because they don't quite understand what it is like to live in poverty or to have those issues. Even maybe billionaires who maybe grew up with not as much money. I think it's pretty easy to forget or pretty easy to remember the responsibilities that you have to your society. And again, mm. like the responsibility should not be on individual people it should I I think like the government has the power and the capacity to distribute wealth more responsibly and that would be a better system for sure wow okay so I have three big mm -hmm. questions uh, and I should have brought a pen so I could write them down but okay first of all what is results 
Results is an organization working to end poverty in the United States and around the globe. So we have um, U.S. poverty initiatives. Right now we're currently working on a renter's tax credit before we were working on an earned income tax credit and a child tax credit. Our global initiatives right now um, include Gavi. We're trying to make sure that Gavi gets the right funding. Um, We were previously working on the global fund. Um, and we did get the the amount of money that we asked for from Congress. So that was a, a great win for results yeah. back in October. This one's going to be a stumper for you. So because uh, you had brought up like what we owe to each other, basically, you know, mm-hmm. that ethics concept. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to hear like, what's your what is, I guess, the pinnacle of character to you or what is, you know, the philosophy of reaching that standard from individuals to individuals? You were talking about it sort of like the responsibilities that we owe to each other and like you or the responsibility to society mm-hmm. and like how do you define that? That's just a casual President's Day morning where we talk about deep philosophical questions. Yeah, casual. <laughs> I don't know if there's really one answer to that question. Um, I don't know if I really found my answer to this question. I just know that for myself, so immigration I mentioned is important to me and that's where I want to go in my career. And that's because I do have these like personal ties to the issues. Um, While at the same time, I recognize that my privilege compared to the rest of my family's privilege is immense, especially when, you know, you're talking about my aunt and her situation. Mm -hmm. But my family's privilege is enormous compared to the privilege of other immigrants who who live in in, you know, extreme violence and Mm. extreme instability. I can't sit comfortably in my privilege because I recognize it and I, I'm aware of it without trying to give something back or without working for more equality for others in whatever way that I can. So that is my social responsibility, I think. And it definitely extends beyond just immigration issues for me. Um, as you said, I, I definitely believe in human rights. I think that people should have very basic rights in this world and in this life that we share, like housing, food, and healthcare, and things like being able to get married to whoever they want, or... Sorry, this is a weird detour. Do you think that Wi-Fi should be a human right? Um, it's not on, like, the top. (laughs) It's not, it's it's definitely not, um... It's not to live, but to exist within our society. For sure. I think... Right now, I mean, we're getting to a place where that's that's definitely um, an issue and that's something that people do need to be able to access to get a job or go to school, you know, even something as simple as... Um, like things like filing to vote or you can... Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of government things that you just can't do mm-hmm. in, like on paper anymore. Right. And I would say in Boise, we're lucky enough to have public libraries mm-hmm. that are accessible and have that free Wi-Fi and the tech, you know, the computers to be able to access the Wi-Fi as well. That's definitely not the case in all cities or towns across the United States and and that is a very big issue yeah like I said we're getting to a point where that (laughs) that needs to to be a thing but I I wouldn't put it on the same caliber as um you know just the right to to have shelter basically sure you know that makes sense it's just one of those things where like we do seem to live in a society where access to information is almost more important than like the actual thing knowing where to find a hostel is almost more important than like the hostel necessarily being there I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
I'm phrasing it poorly. No, I think I think I understand like um, employment. You know, if the if the job is there for someone but they can't access. You know, the application, for example, or yeah, they can't even know that it's open, Mm -hmm. then they're not going to be able to get that job that, you know, could potentially feed their family or keep the roof over their heads or something. Yeah. What is advocacy through results? Like what led you to results? And then, um, therefore your trip to DC recently? Yeah. So, um, I got started in results through a fellowship that is currently called the Real Change Fellowship, but it's being changed to just the Results Fellowship. I started that in July. Um, my coworker sent me the application. We both applied and we both ended up getting in. Congrats. Uh, thank you. Um, it was really cool. It was kind of last minute. And the first part of the fellowship was they flew us to DC for the international conference and they kind of threw us in <laughs> and we learned a lot of information in a really short period of time. The way you described it was basically like you got a dress code and it was like wear good clothes okay go go get them tiger i mean a little (laughs) bit um well it was three days of this international conference and it was intense sessions talking about the different initiatives that we've been working on and the power structures and how racism impacts the class and and um what's it called oh economy yeah yeah basically so how racism impacts the economy and everything and very much in-depth sessions that I don't think a lot of the fellows who had just learned about results were necessarily, at least for me, I wasn't at that caliber yet. Mm. Um, so it was just kind of like, I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but everything is really cool. And <laughs> I'm enjoying learning all of this information. And then the last day is, well, I got, so the last day uh, was advocacy day where we all went to Capitol Hill and we met with our members of Congress and uh, made those asks that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, the night before we did more in-depth preparation for the meetings themselves, but it was very much like a working dinner kind of, okay, you're good. Okay. <laughs> um, kind of thing. It was definitely intimidating going into it, but something that they really focus on telling us at results is that the, the state house, and the and Capitol Hill and everything that's there for us and the legislators and the Congress members of Congress are there for us and they work Mm -hmm. for us Mm -hmm. um so they definitely a big goal was just getting uh, you know everyday people just comfortable walking into the office of a member of Congress yeah and and making those asks and telling them this is my life and this is what impacts me and this is what I need to have a better life I really love the that they made a point of like these are people who work for you. Yeah. Like yes. And we forget that a lot Absolutely. with politics. Yeah. And I have never felt that way before. And as I said, walking into it was very intimidating. But walking out, I had this feeling of okay, I can do this. I am able to do this. I went in there and I had conversations and they listened to me and you know, I had good things to say and I can make a difference this way. Hey there, thank you for listening to another episode of Women Travel. I apologize right now for the sound quality. I'm in the process of designing and creating a sound studio type of space to record. So yes, there is a refrigerator in the background, but eventually there will be a brand new space for me to interview people like Georgette. 
I say this at the end of the episode, but if you're interested in refugee and immigrant rights, I encourage you to see what volunteer opportunities are in your area. I made the mistake of assuming that there weren't any in my area a few years back, and there are so many groups that I didn't know about until right now. And if you're not able to spend your time doing it, then please make whatever donation that you can afford to make. Plant a tree today, appreciate your privilege, and investigate what you can do to help not only globally, but locally. And thanks for listening. You can find me at Women Travel on Twitter, Instagram, and through Gmail. Now back to the show. Now, after your experience in DC, how would you bring that back and how did that tie in with the advocacy versus activism role? Absolutely. So advocacy definitely works within that system of power that does exist because it pits people against each other and the people who benefit the most from that system of power do it at the expense of the people who benefit the least. Mm. And um, there's many different levels and very like a lot of nuances within that. Whereas activism is working to make sure that that doesn't happen, that people who have success have success but it's not at the expense of other people. Mm. However, that kind of activism, I think, is going to take years. Um, you know, at, mm. at the very least, it'll take years. And, you know, who knows what will happen with the next presidential <laughs> election. I mean, hopefully we can... Okay, I am going to interrupt. So you were in D.C. during the wrap-up of uh, Trump's impeachment trial. What was the atmosphere like? It was crazy. Oh, it was a little crazy, yeah. Um, it definitely impacted some of our meetings, I think. We met with one member of Congress, and he was, I think, visibly a little bit more stressed out. Um, in Idaho, all of our members of Congress did vote against impeachment. There, are, It's mostly Republican, isn't it, in Idaho? Uh, all of our members of Congress are Republican, and there was only one member of Congress in the United States, um, Mitt Romney, who did not vote the same. Uh, so he voted for impeachment, um, but all of our members of Congress voted against it. And the one member of Congress we met with was was visibly stressed out. And that Tuesday that we did meet with the members of Congress was also the State of the Union address. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's definitely like an energy going on in DC. And, you know, there were other members of Congress um, who sat out and, and kind of like actively actively protested yeah it just seems like i i can imagine just a whole bunch of of people in suits running around and being very stressed out Mm -hmm. and like not knowing what's going to happen and like at least that's what i like to imagine i think because i was out having dinner that night i think things were quieter outside in the city because i think everyone was either getting ready to watch it live or at home or so it was quiet out in the city fair enough What was your favorite part about being in D.C.? Because this was your first trip, right? When I was in February, that was my second trip. That was your second trip? Yeah, because I was there in July for the International Conference. Oh, okay. So this Mm -hmm. was your second trip. Yeah. Cool. In February. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My favorite part was just experiencing the city a little more and being more comfortable with it. I love riding the metro. Ease of transportation is amazing. (laughs) Um, And it was nice because... 
I also got to walk a lot, you know, here in Boise, I don't get to as much because I drive my car everywhere, mm. especially in the wintertime. So just, uh, you know, being forced a little bit to have that convenience, but also be able to walk places was really nice. There's a lot of, I imagine there's a lot mm. more places to see while you're walking. There are so many places to see. My last day, I had about two hours to eat something and maybe see something and get back to the a hotel to get my stuff and go back to the airport mm-hmm. and I I ate real fast and then I went to the National Portrait Gallery and I mm. just kind of ran through I saw the Obama portraits um because that was like something that everyone was recommending that I see sure. and I definitely wanted to see that uh so I ran through made sure I saw them and kind of like got out like pretty fast what are airport. what are the subjects for the portrait gallery off the top of my head I don't know what the I guess guidelines are for it so how would you describe the portrait gallery um it's a beautiful building that kind of marble that all of the or is it stone the stone that all of the buildings in dc are are made out of and inside i can't really tell you a whole lot because like i really did just run through it i know that you go up one flight of stairs and there's like a presidential portrait area wing and so it goes through all of the different presidents and there's at least one portrait of them and sometimes a couple of them. Is it by chance the West Wing that holds all the presidential portraits? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> that would be that would be fitting for sure. Okay. And then the East Wing is uh, what? <laughs> well, I didn't even make it through the whole floor because I, I ran through just the presidential portraits. I saw the Obama one and I, you know, kind of quickly glanced through the other ones that the Kennedy one was also really cool. Mm. Um, And then I went upstairs to find Michelle Obama's portrait, which was also beautiful. And and it was like in this small room with other um, impactful people. Toni Morrison, I think, had a portrait right next to Michelle Obama. And so that was really beautiful to see as well. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. But that's all I saw. I couldn't tell you anything about the rest of the museum. It just makes me really excited to know that there's a place where someone was like, hey, let's put a whole bunch of pictures of really important people in Mm -hmm. one place so you can just be like, look at this list of people. They're worth being aware of for decades and centuries Yeah, absolutely. Were they painted portraits or photos? For the most part, I saw painted portraits. I don't know if I saw any pictures, but in that wing where the Michelle Obama portrait was hanging, they also had a little glass case with actually a piece of the towers that fell in New York. Oh. Um, Yeah, a little little piece of metal from that. It's not just portraits in there, but it's mostly Mm. paintings. Hmm. That'd be really cool to be painted. (laughs) Yeah. Do you see yourself ever living in in Washington, D.C.? I would love to. And um, if my career goes the way I would like it to, then yeah, um, I will live in D.C. for for a few years sometime. Cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of black suits. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a lot of, I mean, I had a lot of fun. I love dressing up. So every day I, I like dressed up a little bit and I felt like I fit in. Yay. <clears throat> That's such a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we went to uh, the House of Representatives, we were walking in through security and there was, I think my, my shoes set the alarm off a little bit. Um, and the guy was like, do you work here? And I was like, no, but thanks for maybe thinking that I did. <laughs> Yeah. That's such a neat compliment. Like, yeah. I know. Up. Yeah. <laughs> Several times I've wanted to interrupt and just be like, yeah, rock on. But, like, <laughs> yeah, rock on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I have one more really hard question. Okay. Um, great. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's hard to, 
be aware of social issues without not reflecting on your own privilege mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And uh, I think that's one of the most common excuses I ever hear of, of why don't you, you know, or why not do more for society. And a lot of people feel like because economically they can't afford to. Mm-hmm. That's actually, I don't know. Did you ever watch The Good Place? Mm-hmm. Well, not all of it, not all the way through, but... Can I give you a spoiler? Sure. Okay, so spoiler with The Good mm-hmm. Place is that they come to the conclusion that it's impossible to go to heaven mm-hmm. because there's so many, so much baggage. Like, everything is so interlinked. Like, mm-hmm. you can't buy just a tomato mm-hmm. because it's been, you know, illegal labor was used to farm the tomato and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and pesticides, and, and that's just a tomato. Yeah. Um, and so the sin counts were just, like, off the charts yeah. based on the, the show's rules. Mm-hmm. Because you can't make sinless decisions. Right. Was their uh, outcome. And so it's that kind of thing where how how do you personally, big picture, get past that challenge of the economic pull to just protect oneself rather than pushing out trying to help others? I guess the way that I kind of interpreted what what how you were explaining this thing was that some people don't have the luxury of being able to advocate either for themselves or for others you know to advocate the the state legislator for example if you're going to try to advocate locally it runs from during business hours so most people Mm -hmm. work during those times and they can't take time off to to go do that you know time very much is money Mm -hmm. and a lot of people can't afford that that time and your your actual question was how do I reconcile that? So as, yeah, so advocacy is very much like working within the system that is very much like you do something and it's upping your sin count in a way because mm-hmm. you're like working with the people or not the people necessarily. You're working within like the system of power that does you know benefit off of others misfortune the way that i reconcile it is that this system of power is the one that we currently have and i know that there have been good things passed for it for example medicaid in boise was passed to the coverage was expanded to increase more people in boise last year it went into effect this january and that affected thousands of people who otherwise would have been without medicaid so that was a, like a short-term benefit that people got because people worked within the system. So I would definitely divvy it up between like kind of short-term benefits and long-term benefits. And I see a- advocacy as kind of short-term and activism as more long-term. But if you get stuck in the short-term, then then we're never going to move forward from existing beyond this system of power. So you kind of have to do both at the same time. So you can be an advocate, I think, and I know many people would disagree, but I think that you could be an advocate, but as long as you keep on working as an activist as well you can keep moving forward maybe drop your sin count a little bit or at least um keep it from rising too much yeah it's one of those things where like i i do believe that a lot of people are good people Mm -hmm. but it's difficult to do the thing that won't make money like or to spend time volunteering, or to... Mm-hmm. I have talked to countless millennials who have chosen a career track that will make money mm-hmm. rather than what they were passionate about, mm-hmm. hands down. Like, because they just couldn't see a feasible way to pay for college with a more or a, a more risky degree. Mm-hmm. I was kind of curious what your perspective is on that. Like, um, can you remind me, what degree did you study? 
Uh, communications in French. No, that's a really good one. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's something that I noticed with your career path. Like, I'm very impressed by who you are, are as a person. And I'm impressed by your choices because they, to me, appear more risky. For sure. Um, so before I was working in nonprofit and before I was into advocacy and very much into, like, actively doing the activism, I worked for a startup company. I was doing search engine optimization. Mm. I was a content creator, so I was writing a lot of articles but I didn't really feel like the articles were having a positive impact on the world and the articles were kind of just a vehicle to make other companies more money and so there wasn't a lot of fulfillment in my job and that really weighed down on me and so that's why I wanted to jump into nonprofit. even though so I started working with uh, the agency for new Americans a refugee resettlement agency at a time when the number of refugees allowed to come into the country had dropped by more than half in a year with the new administration and that the number of refugees that this resettlement agency receives is directly tied to the amount of funding they get so mm-hmm. they had already been making some cuts and they were actually not sure if they were going to be able to stay open so I came on at a time when they, it was like an existential crisis and it's been an existential crisis every year for them since the administration came in. But for me, it's worth it. For me, I am confident that I will land on my feet. Again, I have that privilege and I have that luxury um, of being able to take those chances. And for me, I want to do as much good as I can while I'm able to. And right now, that's that's where I see myself doing the most good right now. For me, again, like taking into account my privilege, it's it's an easy decision for me. Okay, this is not a typical question that I ask, but Mm -hmm. I'm dying to... What... Where do you see yourself in five years? I, so currently I am a youth mentorship coordinator, um, but I have done some advocacy work within my job at the Agency for New Americans. I would like to make advocacy the main part of my career for immigrants and refugees. I would love to either do that through the Agency for New Americans as possible, or there's a lot of really cool um, national and international organizations doing that advocacy work. I would love to join one of them potentially and just continue doing doing this work maybe in maybe in five years by that time I could see myself living in DC so that'll uh end it for us today again that's Georgette Sikiros sure (laughs) for um the agency for new Americans follow us on Facebook again we are um kind of a local resettlement agency in Boise Idaho um we very much have lost a lot of funding over the past couple of years so donate if you can like us on Facebook and share our posts get the word out something that I would also recommend is check for local resettlement agencies to help out in your community because once I started looking I found more and more and like Mm -hmm. there's one in Montana there's one Mm -hmm. in Idaho Um, Mm -hmm. it's just a really good experience to welcome someone to your country Um, and I would love to see more people doing that and and it's one of those things where once you when you see someone you can't dehumanize them with a Fox News statistic Mm -hmm. you just can't do that anymore they become real and they're and they have a story and and they matter Mm -hmm. especially when you see them in person Mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time and uh, you're just so yeah yeah, you're going places (laughs) it's I'm so excited to watch you thank you that is very kind (laughs) thanks for having me yeah